All right, welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. This is part two of the Giles Dobbiny. I want to call it the Giles Dobbiny Experience. The Giles Dobbiny Podcast. Um, hope you enjoyed part one. Very knowledgeable fella, Giles. Been there, done it, seen it all, helping other people with their journey at the moment. And an all round, very knowledgeable man. Uh, and keeping people like that around is really important to me in my business. I spend my days speaking to founders, top performers, and non-executive directors like Giles. And we also have all our relationships with the people who sell things into the recruitment industry. And that led us to building Require. And Require is a community for recruitment founders and it's an ecosystem of everything we've built from this podcast and our RecDirect business. And we have built that with Andy Hallett um, and now with a guy called Dan Alexander, who's a training guru. And we have another senior team member coming in to launch our chat GPT advisory service. And there'll be more on that later. But what I'm building is an all-in-one platform where recruitment founders can get their recruiters trained, they can get all the information that they want, they can do peer-to-peer learning with people in the community, with us, with other non-executive directors, where our WhatsApp groups are vetted and you have to qualify to get into certain levels. And you get access to the best supplier discounts but not just that you'll have the advice of charlotte uh, and andy on what services will work best within your business so what we wanted to do was help recruitment founders scale and grow and build more profitable businesses and i'd say we'll have it up and running and built properly by october it took us three years to build what we've built and on the face of it, it looks like a couple of WhatsApp groups and maybe some events. But what it is, is a whole ecosystem and 22 supplier partnerships and two or three different advisory businesses and lots, lots more. And it, I'm really proud of what we built, but where we're going with it excites me. And building great teams is great. So I've got my recruitment business. I've got a few billers in that. I still bill myself. And that's nice. You know, that keeps the lights on, keeps us in this nice house in Gibraltar and living a nice life. And then we have Recware that we're building with other great people. And I know this business is going to go somewhere. And what we want from any recruitment founder that listens to this or wants any advice or wants to be around other recruitment founders just reach out to me and we will help you and then we will want you to help us build this because we want to solve all the problems that you have and we've got the team that can do it so i'll not talk too much about it now because i am really excited but in october it should be ready to rock and the build is already underway so uh this is part two with Giles. Hope you guys enjoy it. If you want to come on the podcast or you want to get into the community, 
or if there's anything I can do for you, feel free to hit me up. Hi, Dan Alexander here, and this episode is brought to you by Required, the all-in-one go-to platform for serious recruitment professionals, owners, and founders who are looking to grow their businesses. Now, we'll actually be launching the new online platform very soon, and if you'd like to be one of the first people to get access to our state-of-the-art learning platform and vault of online resources, then get in touch with us through the link in the description of this episode. And that, so that's interesting. Um, let me dive into some of that. The, when a business is on a journey of tremendous growth in new markets, and new desks, the, there's loads of opportunity for career progression. But how then does the business pivot down the road when you're in 30 countries, you have the local managers in place, and you've got these new upstart companies that are adjacent to it who are promoting quicker and faster. How how do you how do you manage to keep your people in, in that circumstance? I think to be honest with you, we were able to keep our people because we were able to promote them and give them new challenges. Mm-hmm. Now that might be to be a new office, it might be to run two or three teams, it might be to start up a new discipline. Um And I think, you know, people either want their careers to go in a number of different directions. They either just want to bill, which is fine. Yeah. And they don't want to manage. Or there are others that that want to develop their career. And obviously, like many industries or businesses, the more senior you get, the further away you go from doing what you you really enjoyed doing. So in recruitment, you know, that was placing people. So... uh, uh... PLCs, big companies have no experience to be able to challenge you on that. I believe that everybody should do some form of billing as much as possible um, to a certain point. Like a, should, a, should a director of an office of 30 to 50 people, should they not have strategic relationships with people at the bank trying to make, make deals, make things happen? They have relationships, but the more senior you get, the further away and obviously the bigger the business is, you, you, you can't you can't do the job. You lose touch of what's going on. I'd much prefer to have a, a guy running an office who's got six managers reporting to him, he's got eight people they've got eight people under them, and all of them are hitting their targets. That's his job. Okay. So no, it comes at there comes a point, and there came a point with the with the business, with the people that once you got to a certain level where you were managing a certain number of people, you can't build. And um, actually, if you're a manager or a director, your job is to manage the people that are working for you to bill. And if you've got eight people billing, that's going to be far better than just you billing. And I think people make the mistake of when it gets tough, they think in a managerial position, oh, I better start billing. Well, that doesn't help the people that are under you who are struggling. Yeah. Uh, I. I remember being at Robert Walters and uh, they used to wheel you in on the TV once a quarter. <laughs> We'd be put in the boardroom and uh, all in our bad, our, our, our cheap suits. Now we were well paid. We were just off. We were just off the tourist, the tourist train, you know? So, yeah. uh, and I'm one of what I, I remember this distinctly, actually, it, it was the decision or it was your first results that came out from your RPO business. 
and it was a tremendous success. Walk us through what that process was like to creating Robert Walters RPO business and how you've made that decision so early on versus the traditional methodology that you always went through. That's that's a fascinating story. And 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 it's like so many of these things. It started by accident. Um, We've got a number, certainly, well, Credit Suisse I'd mentioned earlier, big, big investment banks that were hiring in droves. And in fact, it was an ex-employee who she used to work for us who had joined Credit Suisse in HR. And she rang us up and she said, I've got hundreds literally hundreds of jobs. I need some help. Could you help us? Um, so what we did was we sent one of our banking consultants um, to Credit Suisse on site. And that really is how it started. And it, it developed from there. And I think what made um, Resource Solutions as it became slightly different from within the Robert Walters group There were other people doing RPO, but we were one of the few people that were doing it as part of a recruitment business. Mm. And we didn't want it to damage the recruitment business. But that's literally how it started. And certainly in the early days, all the clients were big financial institutions. And it started off as a leased HR person, Mm. or like a leased HR person. We'd send a consultant um down and they'd work alongside the hr function i mean this was before they had sort of talent acquisition teams and chief people officers and goodness knows what else and 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 they used to help manage the agencies um as well as doing in those days not that much direct recruitment and it turned out to be one of the best moves that you guys ever made is that fair to say Yes, it was. And and I think we would say it was the only innovative thing we've ever done. <laughs> really? It was, it was very different. The rest was predominantly organic growth. Yeah. Um, and, um, it, you know, we, we made three acquisitions in, in my time there, but we were... We weren't a specialist acquisition business. We, we believed in the organic growth story. How do you get people so bought into your culture? Like I, I remember, I remember people just real die hard on it from from day one. Who've just been there for a long time and really believed in the ethos, the mission. To to a point, I was like, like it's it it sticks with me and a couple of my friends who who came from there who have our own recruitment agencies now. Who were like, how could we get our people that bought into to to the way that they did? Almost evangelical, some of them. I think, to be honest with you, it was the fact that we hired people who knew nothing else in recruitment. And so what they got was Robert Walters. This is where we are. And in a way, I mean, I know they're certainly in the UK, they're not here, but Andersons were very like that. Arthur Andersons used to join Arthur Andersons. They used to send you for induction their head office in Chicago or wherever it was. And that was it. And and we used to joke in those days, you could spot an Anderson's accountant, blue suit, white shirt, red tie. Price Waterhouse would be slightly different. Yeah. And I guess Robert Walters, rightly or wrongly, did have a bit of a reputation of guys wearing smart suits. It certainly, and I think on the outside people thought it, but it wasn't. It wasn't a 
predominantly public school. Far from it. Rob's not a public school guy. Um, but I guess he, I, we identified people who were motivated, who wanted to earn money and wanted to develop a career. And I think the other thing is we made it fun. Um, you will have known there were all sorts of things that, that either the office did or, or a team did that, you know, do well, get rewarded. And that stuck. And I think then people were able to develop careers and, you know, have that longevity. I guess as the business grew, you were able to offer international. And that was also very attractive. And it's one of those things. It's attractive. Everybody says they want it. But when it comes to it, there's probably only about 25 percent that actually push comes to shove will go or want to go. But those that did and do um, have ended up doing very well i think the other thing is we we took a chance on a few people you know a couple of people i can think of who you might say didn't do that well in their academic background they they messed around and i put myself in that category and then suddenly they joined a robert walters and suddenly it all clicked into place or they they and we always used to say it's a bit like a drug you know recruitment is one of those things once you've got it in your in your bones um it's the most amazing industry there is i remember i probably put myself in that category as well i I remember leaving robert walters and moving to canada and i come from a very structured team in robert walters and i was very well trained despite myself um i was very well trained uh and i went to a very unstructured business in canada and i I couldn't settle. I couldn't believe it. It, it, it I, I, everything seemed wrong to me. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a, when I advise recruiters now, I, I'm always like, just be kind of careful if you're going to leave a big structured business, not to go to the complete wild. Like there, there could be a halfway house or there could be someone who's aspiring to get to that point. But I found that gap myself. And I suppose one of the other things, they, they do very well is they, they inspire confidence in your own ability you believe in the brand but you also do that i probably overstepped that and realized that when i left oh wow that was actually quite a quite a lot of her not me <laughs> you know yeah i think that's a good point they they, they the business is very good at that and and that's something that i try and instill in any business that i'm involved with at the moment keep it simple um, you do need to, and I and I, it's I hear a lot of oh you know I don't want KPIs I don't like to be overmanaged get that, but I do believe you do need to have some sort of discipline or KPIs that actually says, and I know experience tells me if you do this, and you get that many interviews or you have that many meetings, you are going to make you're going to hit your target. If you don't, you're not going to. I think so. The, the danger here comes that. You do it, you get good at it. You learn how to do the shortcuts. You're then not data-driven, so then you can't show the next person how to do it and the business doesn't grow. And you don't need that management, but that doesn't mean the business doesn't. But it also means you do need it because you weren't able to teach somebody. So the P&L doesn't grow. And I think people are quite impatient these days, me included, that... They will leave after a couple of years without maybe getting into 
into the nitty gritties of building P&Ls and offices and teams and understanding that piece of it. So some of us just have to learn the hard way, right? Yeah, I guess, and it depends on you as an individual. Um, but the, the point you make there, daughter, is great. I mean, one of the toughest decisions I ever had to make, um, as I said, we were talking earlier, we entered Hong Kong. We were very lucky. I hired two very senior people out of one of our competitors who remained nameless. Um, and they hadn't signed their contracts. So they had no notice period. So literally we hired them and a week later they started. Um, about 18 months later, um, I had to fire one of the individuals who was had been a global top biller at where he'd come from and was probably, if not our global top biller, uh, he was very, very close to it. The problem was everything was in his head. He didn't put it on the system. So he was, and he was running the office. He'd walk into the office and chalk up another big fee with whoever it was. And people, well, where's this candidate? Um, and, and he and I are great friends. And we have been. That, I mean, this is a, probably an RW culture. I'll give you the day after I obviously had to have a conversation with him. I said, come on, we're going to go for lunch. I said, where do, you, where do you want to go? Let's just go and blow the afternoon. So we went to the grill at the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong, and we had a monstrous lunch um, of a very large bill. But from that day on, um, James and I have been great friends. I, I was involved in buying his business um, again years later in the Philippines. And, and still today, we probably speak every six weeks. But that's, you know, and I think, Believe it or not, RW has got a bit of that culture. It's amazing the number of people who've either left of their own choice or not, who may have gone on to be very successful, but there is there is still a, dare I say, a pull. Yeah, it's uh, we uh, we all had real positive experiences, and uh, you, I think a large part of it is you catch a good market, you catch a good company in a good market at the right time in the right sector. And if you can't make that work, there's something wrong with you. You shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So we're very uh, very lucky to, to hit hit all those things, really. Um, You're right about the good market, but, you know, I've been through three pretty deep and unpleasant recessions. I mean, in, in the 90 to 94 period, Robert Walters grew the business by the end, about 94, the end of it, there was about 120 people. Um, we'd recently opened an office in... France and Paris, um, we ended up um, making 40 people redundant and closing two offices. Now, the learning curve there was we closed our office in Paris, which was probably one of the biggest mistakes we made because it took us 14 years to get back into Paris. Wow. And everybody said, well, they've been here before. Um, are they going to close again? Um, but the business was pre predominantly permanent recruitment then, and, and we had to go through that. And then I went through SARS in Asia. I mean, you know, we ended up moving quite a few people out of Hong Kong and sending them to our Singapore office. So I think what the business was really good at was looking after its people, mm. even though when things were tough, we had to make tough decisions, and people accepted that. But I think as long as you treat people well and treat it, treat them fairly um they understand did did you even retire for five minutes 
when I was working full time or even now. No, I never did. I loved it. I mean, I, you know, and particularly the last 10 years, my my job was we, we were growing. We were opening offices internationally. But I had the most fantastic management team. You know, I had a dozen people around the world who had got a tenure, average tenure of about 14 years of working for me. Wow. Some of them joined the graduates. Um, and, and that, you know, I'm a great believer in this industry, particularly if it's society, you've got to trust people. Um, and you've got to have that trust. And so for me, if I'd speak to the guy who was running Australasia, I knew if he said, Giles, I'm going to have a duff month, he was going to have a duff what month. His, what was his name, the, 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 the chap? Uh, James Nicholson. Um, or was it Richard Parnell? Yeah, I think it was Richard Parnell. Uh, James yeah, Nicholson, he, that was Big Red, wasn't it? Yeah, J Richard, Dick, Richard Parnell joined Robert Walters, actually, about two or three months before me. And he was a classic Robert Walters hire. He'd been at Arthur Anderson's um, for two years. I think he'd failed his exams and decided he, he didn't want to be an accountant. I, uh, I, had to do, I had to do an interview with him to join in Perth because he, he was running, they just put us through the, the steps. On yeah, the yeah. And he said, but uh, how long are you going to stay here? You know, like you're from Ireland. He said, oh, my... My parents are moving here. Don't worry. They're like, it's all set up. <laughs> Filled them with loads of lies, but uh, I'm sure he uh, <laughs> worked. <laughs> uh, very, very good. So um, what keeps you going now? It, it, you obviously did tremendously well in your career and you're out there. You're you're an advisor to, to a few businesses there that I know out there. Umbrella and some of the some of the some of the big recruitment companies and growing recruitment companies. Well, why not put the feet up, relax, take yourself well, first, take yourself out, yeah. walk the dog. Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing is my wife would kill me <laughs> uh, being stuck at home. Hey, and I'm I'm young. I've got energy, and I and I and I love what I do. I mean, I'm lucky at the moment. I've got two really interesting things, and and I'm would look for, for another one or two but what I most enjoy at the moment is working with a young management team who want to grow their business yeah. um, as, as, as you know recruitment is not difficult um, but what I can offer is probably a, a few grey hairs or a bit more than a few and a lot of it's common sense but I, I've also learned the more senior you get I think you're, you're I think you're underplaying that a little bit um you need to talk to somebody I mean one of the best decisions I ever made and and, and the business probably had about two two and a half thousand people then um was I got myself a sort of business coach yeah. and we used to meet every six eight weeks but that was an opportunity just to download yeah. um she didn't tell me what to do. Um, or how to do it because she hadn't been in recruitment so she wouldn't know but and I think you know being an advisor or a non-exec chairman or a non-exec for a business it's supporting the management team um, and it's it's probably a bit of experience you know I think I hear in lots of moment or oh, everybody wants to open in America well the US is littered with the sort of corpses of British industry and people think, well, I've got a recruitment business, say, in the UK. It'd be easy. Just go and do the same thing. Uh, no, it isn't. And it's very different. And it's not easy. 
And I would suggest the US is one of the places that's very difficult to send somebody from the UK. You need somebody who understands their market. And just because we sort of speak the same language doesn't mean you do. So I enjoy what I do. Um, and, you know, if I could help an organisation or some people grow their business and, and be successful, then that's what I find interesting. But that's what I've done all my life. I mean, you know, my career, okay, I started off as a consultant, but certainly for the last 10 years, I very much viewed it as developing people's careers and building a business. And so in some respects, you know, let, we've talked about Australasia and Asia and you know, some of these guys I had reporting to me may have a couple of hundred people. Um, and so I would attend their management meeting, but almost as like a chairman, as an observer. And very much our culture, Robert Walters, was I didn't sit in my office with a map of the world sticking pins in locations saying we're going to open here, we're going to open there. It was very much bottom up. So if you were running... Um, We'll give you a live example. The guy who was running Singapore at the time came to me and he said, Giles, I think we should be seriously considering being in KL. Lots of the international businesses are setting up shared service centres in KL. We're getting loads of clients asking us, can we recruit in KL? Um, we are doing a bit of work there. I think it's a market we should consider. So I said, great, go and research it. Um, when I'm when I'm out in a couple of months, let's sit down and spend a day talking about the market, etc. So, you know, that's a great example. Mark went off, researched the market. When we caught up, he'd got a business plan. And of course, I big question was, Mark, who's gonna run it? Who who've we got? And he'd identified somebody who'd been with the group six or seven years, who was very keen to go. So he basically put the business plan to me and the budget and all of that. I signed it off, got final sign off from the, the board, and that was it. Off we went. But he also knew, because the way he was rewarded, that he would have a budget. And obviously the, that new office would be in his budget. So if he got it wrong, it cost him money. <laughs> but that was a great way. You know, you were talking about developing people's career. That gave him that responsibility. At, at whatever, however old he was, 26, 27, I think been given the response yeah go and research it and and that i don't know it's probably got 70 people in now that business very profitable first person that we hired she ended up running it for 10 years was a local yeah there everyone in that office is local and when you look at the future of our industry now and you'll have seen you, you'll have been part of like technology acquisitions over the years um and just seeing in the shape of like dealing with private equity and what what businesses actually want out there, hey, do you, are you fearful of the human element disappearing from from our industry, or do you think do you think there's a, another good ten years ahead, or what? Like if you had a crystal ball, what 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 is it saying to you? I I don't think the human element will ever disappear. I mean, I I remember um, we were looking at uh, floating the business first time round and we were going around the city and everybody was talking about the dot com and job boards and all this sort of stuff and you know you're going to be redundant. Absolutely not. Recruitment has thrived since. And I do believe the human element will never disappear. Um you're dealing with people, not robots. Um and I'm 
in some respects, I think technology has been good for the industry, but I think it's also been bad. I think people, the human element is not as great as when I was involved. People are happy to spend all day long tapping at a computer, mm. um, whereas we had to go out and speak to people. Now people send WhatsApp messages. If I wanted to get a hold of you as a candidate, I'd pick up the phone and speak to you. Yeah. I couldn't send you a WhatsApp message. And I think once you're talking to people, you have a greater opportunity of building a relationship. For sure. Um, and so I, I believe our industry or the recruitment industry, I mean, I can't remember how many billions it's worth now. Nothing's changed. But what I do think is interesting and what's going on in the industry is I think the bigger companies are getting bigger. I think there's two two good examples Um and they're almost becoming global business services organizations. I think you've got um, Taneo, which um, does anything from board advice, board strategy, um, financial PR, executive search. Um, they bought KPMG's restructuring business. But interesting, the buyers of their services are all either CEOs or chairmen. I think the other one that's moved in that direction a bit has uh, been Corn Ferry, because mm. 20 years ago they were known purely as an executive search firm. I think these days executive search only counts for 32% of their business. Mm. You know, they've got hay management, they've got an outsourcing business. Um, and I think, you know, companies are either going to be very big like um Hayes, Page, not your Page. Um, you've got the Americans, Randstad. You've got Manpower. But you know, I I sometimes wonder how the medium-sized companies, uh, a Robert Walters, an S three, which in some people's minds are very big companies, but yeah. in others are pretty small. Uh, and whether some there's something going to have to happen there. And then, of course, you've got a lot of very successful boutique organisations. For sure. But yeah. I always believe there'll be a demand. You know, even what we've been through with, with SARS and um, as one example, and then COVID, everybody is talking today about a shortage of good quality people. Mm. We've, uh, we've tried to structure our own business, although it's tiny, uh, to be multi-service so we we have a rec to rec business we provide back office into recruitment agencies charlotte as you know does advisory and technology and that and then we built our required community which gives a voice to all the founders and then all the service yeah. providers that 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 come into it i can see a lot i can see a lot of other companies becoming multi-service providers to to their clients it it, it it makes sense if you've got one person who you can sell to, if the skills to sell something isn't that hard to just productize different lines. Let's see. Yeah, I think I think that's right. But I, I always believe to to begin with, don't spread yourself too thin. You know, you yeah. do what you do and you do it very well and you build a successful, profitable business, be it in IT, life sciences, rec to rec, whatever it is, doing certain things. And then we have a great phrase that I used to have called subdivide and grow. So you build a team, get it up to eight, get it very profitable, whatever. And then hopefully you take somebody out of that team who wants to be a manager and get them to go and build another business. Mm. Um, you know, so in, in back in the day, we'd start with, 
commerce or financial services, but then you could subdivide financial services. You could have a team doing credit and risk. Let, let me jump in. Let me jump into that for for a little second. Uh, people who aren't professionally trained or who haven't been in a big organization won't know how you do that. So, in getting those people to aid, a lot of those people come in without experience, and the holy grail throughout is to get to that leadership position and then maybe open up something. And that's put in the lines of communication the whole way from your first appraisal to year one, two, three, management training, et cetera, et cetera. It's ingrained, isn't it? It, it, It's a whole systemized thing to get your company to grow, right? Yeah. But I think the key thing is, um, and... uh, I would do this, we'd say to people that you won't get any opportunity to move or do anything for at least two years. You've got to sit in this job, working in this team. You've got to prove you can do it, be successful. Mm. Then after two years, there may be the opportunity to go internationally or whatever. And we would say to people, it's a minimum of two years. Now, occasionally we might move somebody a little bit earlier, um, who'd done very well, but actually, you know, you've invested in that person, in that team. I want to see a return on that. And so, you know, the whole conversation for your appraisal is, yes, this quarter's been good, got to keep doing that, got to do this, got to do that. I know you're interested in international, but, you know, we'll be having that conversation in, in 18 months' time. And I think you've got to set the expectations. And when people know that you've got an international business and they can see that it's it's there they realize that actually it is a reality and i think one of the the big things that we used to do um was try and get people involved and to meet colleagues from another country or another state or wherever it is um so you know they can actually see what's going on you know we were were very keen particularly certain people to say to them well you know, go and go and spend a day in the office or two days in the office in Frankfurt or Brussels or wherever it might be, Hong Kong. And so we used to give little incentives to people. So, you know, if you hit your quarterly target or and, and you are feed, we'll send you down to Hong Kong for two nights. Yeah. From Singapore or whatever. Or, you know, you're in Perth. Well, you'd be good for you to go and meet the guys in Sydney. You and I know that that's a five-hour flight. It's not just a drop down the road. Um, But it's a nice weekend. Yeah, normally used to get there Friday morning, um, spend some time in the office, get taken out for a nice lunch by somebody, and then maybe enjoy your Friday night and Saturday. So it was little things like that. And, And I think it's great value in people understanding what their colleagues do in different locations. All right, Jazz, that is us today. Uh, we have spoken for nearly an hour, which is the longest one I've done in a while. I think we'll uh, probably have to divide this into two episodes. Uh, I must, uh, I'm, we're going to be whole holding our required summer party, which will give you some details on that. But yeah, it might be good to get you as yeah, one, of, one of the speakers on that. Um, your uh, your experience is uh, is great, and there's not many people with it out there. So uh, thank you for all you've done to the industry, the ripple effect that you've probably had on my own business and career. um, It's much appreciated. It's been great, Dalton. Thank you for asking me. And I 
Look forward to having a beer with you when you're in London next. <laughs>